Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Michael. Hey, Cameron. I'm winning the lottery. Oh my gosh. Here I am. I've won the lottery. Hooray! 5,000 buckaroos. <laughs> I can't wait for you to buy me a, a new microphone here in the podcast shop. Yep. That's what I'm doing. I got to call. I got to call the delivery guy to get a microphone from the podcast shop. <laughs> Michael, don't you think it's weird that a large part of the novel that we're reading uh, for this month, Cujo, uh, don't you think it's weird that a large part of it revolves around someone winning the lottery? It's so I think, yes, you can say it's weird, but actually, I think it is perfectly of a piece with this book and what this book is sort of interested in, in, in kind of a, a big sense. Um, I think it's kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the lottery winning in this book is almost hokey. And I think that's kind of the point, right? Like it, this book goes so hard for like, the, the melodrama that we've talked about throughout this show mm -hmm. that a character just like conveniently winning the lottery feels just perfectly of a piece with everything. Shirley Jackson's the lottery. Well, you know, ironically, this works out much better for, for the character who wins it here. That's true. You know what? And that's probably the only, uh, accurate and correct use of the word irony that's ever happened on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Cujo, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, you read this thing before? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know when it... I mean, it, it wouldn't have been an early King book, right? This would have been... I started reading Stephen King again, like, in my tweens or early teens. <clears throat> and then kind of spent my teenage years, like, working through it all. I was not reading them in publication order, as we are doing here. Mm -hmm. uh, but at some point, at some point, I read Cujo. And um, I'll admit... It didn't make much of an impression on me. I read Cujo pretty early. It had to be in the first 10 or so. I know I read it before any of the other books, like from the 80s. Mm. I probably read the Dark Tower books that existed at the time before I read Cujo. Mm. You know, so this is like, I'd probably read the Dark Tower. I'd probably read it. I'd probably read The Stand. But, you know, kind of getting into whatever the next, you know, bracket of King books. I think this is probably pretty early on in that. Huge impression on me, massive impression on me. The the end of this book uh, hit me like a sledgehammer when I was, you know, whatever, twelve or thirteen. Hmm. Um, and I th I think it hits pretty hard now. Still, <laughs> like it's still a, a real ass end of the book. Um, and uh, you know, I guess we can talk about it when we get there. But I, you know, th something you've written in the the notes here is the bleakness of this book 
is you know overwhelming and i would even say that it is nihilistic mm-hmm. um you know it's it's a, a book where people are damned mm-hmm. um and uh yeah so it, like it hit me really hard um you know kujo has always kind of been in my head as like you know when stephen king is really doing the damn thing mm-hmm. um the other thing too is i will say and i don't know if this is this the same for you but when i was growing up kujo had a, uh, I don't know, kind of a cultural force in it Mm -hmm. that no other Stephen King book probably had. I mean, you could you could make references to Cujo when I was I think when we were younger in the way that I imagine like kids of a similar age today might reference Pennywise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or they're talking about Da Vinci or whatever they got on those TikToks yeah. over there. Well, I mean, I'm, uh, I I was assuming Pennywise on account of the fact that I don't think the Da Vinci people are murdering, but uh, maybe that's changed. I, maybe Dead by Dawn has gotten really conceptual. Yeah, um, <laughs> they should put it. No, there is there is a boy band in there, right? There's uh, a there's, there's like a K-pop star, there's a right? K- there's a K-pop star, yeah. Mm-hmm. Da Vinci boys are right after the Da Vinci twins. Yeah. They are right there on the edge. And honestly, they're just a, anyway. Like we can <laughs> sorry, I'll get us get us off track here. But yeah, you could make a reference. You could say something went Cujo or was a Cujo, <laughs> and that like worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking specifically. So I I had uh you know I I I. I <laughs> Like many people in my, um, we'll say income bracket, my class, from my class background, when I was a kid, right, I had two working parents, mm-hmm. and so, you know, summers are, are weird. There's no universe in which they could afford, like, straight up, you know, childcare in the way that, uh, you know, you might send someone to, to, to camp or daycare or whatever. So I got, like, uh, you know, like cousins would, um, you know, I had some, some older cousins who would, like, just hang out with me during the day and i'm sure they got paid but you know a nominal amount of money <laughs> all uh, my all my paid cousins <laughs> all all of my paid cousins you know and so like th- these are like the years where i like just played diablo constantly mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like it, you know my my preteen and my teen years but i remember them always talking about like bad budget horror films from the 80s and actually we're going to talk on the bonus episode about Cujo it's not a bad movie or or a budget movie in any kind of way but it was kind of in that thing they were I remember them always talking about uh the film Pumpkinhead which mm-hmm. if you are a range touch fan and you listen to the Patreon podcast you've heard Danny monologue about that link many <laughs> times um but they would talk about that um they would talk about like Firestarter that would come up but Cujo would come up all the time and in my childhood, Cujo always came up this way. Well, if I was trapped by a rabid dog like Cujo, this is what I would do. And then they would like spin up mm-hmm. like an elaborate story of how they would defeat a rabid dog. Before zombies, this is what we had. It kind of was. It is that way. It's that exact same kind of like cultural impulse, right? Before you could talk about the connections in the Marvel movies, right? You you had to talk about what you would do if you were attacked by Cujo, <laughs> and and like that's just what what was up. And so I have this really kind of like you know, networked and burned in. Other movies they would talk about uh, are the Look Who's Talking series. What if babies could talk? <laughs> it's my favorite low budget up- horror series. <laughs> That one came up all the time too, for whatever reason. But this is the if uh, if the things I talk about are weird, just imagine me having to grow up within this, <laughs> <laughs> and then you maybe that explains me in some ways. Um, but as Stephen King tells us, biography 
doesn't explain anything. Mm-hmm. So don't don't read it too far. But anyway, sorry, that's my long explanation of uh, my connection to Cujo, but um, a pretty significant one. I've spent a lot of time in my life around uh, Cujo, th- hashtag Cujo thoughts, mm-hmm. um, and in ways that, I don't know, maybe other people did too. Sign off in the comments, you know, let, let us know, tweet at us if... Uh, you too grow up in a, grew up in an environment where people were constantly talking about what they would do if they were attacked by Cujo. <laughs> well, that's that's all that's all great to know. I'm glad we've uh, <laughs> established uh, the the vast universe of of Cujo thoughts. Um, the the other sort of thing about Cujo, the other kind of popular conception uh, regarding. The, the text that maybe should be addressed is even one that we we kind of paid obeisance to in the last episode. Uh, the idea promulgated by Stephen King himself that he does not remember writing it. Yeah. We, um, you want me to read this selection from uh, on writing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's start with that because that's where that's where this story comes from. Like Stephen King in uh, a couple decades, um, we'll get there sooner than that, uh, publishes a book called On Writing. That's kind of his second nonfiction book. And uh, he has this to say. Take it away, Cameron. At the end of my adventures, I was drinking a case of 16-ounce tall boys a night. And there's one novel, Cujo, that I barely remember writing at all. I don't say that with pride or shame, only with a vague sense of sorrow and loss. I like that book. I wish I could remember enjoying the good parts as I put them down on the page. And yeah, that's uh, kind of what King uh, says about, like, most specifically about this book, the experience of writing it. Um, And this is, if it's not clear, during the part of that book where he is talking about his substance abuse issues and kind of his... I think this is in the run-up to... uh, I'm not going to... An intervention. I don't know if there have been maybe multiple interventions. I do understand that, like, King, I think, has relapsed a couple times, but it seems to me that this was in the run-up to, like, his family's first big intervention uh, with him, if I'm remembering where this appears in the book correctly. Um, And so... Yeah, it has to be because... Is this... This is 1981? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I I mean, maybe this is... Well, no, actually. So this might actually be where he... So... This is this is important. The way that this gets talked about, right, and the way that this uh, get this anecdote gets moved, a lot of people talk about, and we've done this too, right? A lot of people talk about how you know uh, King is like on cocaine and booze, and he like doesn't remember writing this. Um, and this is something we've talked about in the bonus episodes too. It seems like, like weirdly enough, that somewhere here in the early 1980s, Stephen King might stop drinking so heavily, but really continues using cocaine. Mm. Um, because we know up through 1985 that he is still using cocaine mm-hmm. because of the films. Right. Hmm. That's right. So, but it doesn't seem, you know, I don't know. Maybe he could. I don't know how you could, I guess, I guess you could theoretically do this, but it might be hard to make maximum overdrive. Mm-hmm. And be drinking a case of sixteen ounce tall boys every night. Well, you know, the, that I don't. The, you know, the Tommy Knockers isn't until like eighty seven or something like that, and he's like been very open that that is a novel about him thinking through his addiction. So that also yeah. lines up that his intervention actually comes maybe somewhere around like eighty six or something. Yeah, yeah, and that would make a lot of sense because I think I, I I'm associating eighty four eighty five with kind of peak abuse here so maybe he's just pulling down on drinking because i know by the end of the 1980s right he is doing 
uh, it's prescription pills that are a big problem for him. And those become a big problem for him again later mm-hmm. in life, too, mm-hmm. after his accident. So anyway, that's all. You know, we, we don't have a, the world's best timeline of Stephen King's addictions. But this is all to say, you know, obviously these things are important for these novels. Obviously, they're important for the show in some ways of thinking through Stephen King in the 1980s. But, Michael, why are we reading this anecdote here from On Writing? Because that does seem important. Well, here's here's the thing. Stephen King, in 2001, when he's writing this, may genuinely not remember writing Cujo. But if you do just a little bit of digging, uh, you find out that this was not always true. That, in fact, uh, we have a whole kind of production history for this book. Uh, King has talked extensively about, like, writing it, where he got the ideas, and, and sort of all that stuff. Um, these are primarily interviews that come out of the 80s. And as I said, you know, it, it may very well be by by 2001, uh, sort of the, the effects of his, his substance use have um, compounded such that he does not remember. But at one point, he did have kind of a sense of what he was doing here. And like, there's a record of that. So that's kind of interesting to to think about. And it helps us kind of push back on, uh, I don't know, sort of the way that the narrative around this uh, can get spun, which is just that like Stephen King, weirdly enough, it actually like folds into his his own kind of story of himself as like someone who doesn't outline, right? As someone who just Mm -hmm. taps into the numinous and like stuff comes through him. Um, but like there, there was a process for this book. There was kind of a history to it. And it's kind of interesting to compare that, uh, with, I mean, what the book is and kind of what the book's legacy becomes, because even if, um, you know, the, the narrative around this novel is not quite like, uh, accurate or like could use some, uh, uh, refiguring, uh, the outlook and mindset of someone in, in the sort of the deepest throes of substance abuse, uh, feels evident in this novel. Yeah, I just want to look back around here to, you, you know, I think you're being uh, very charitable here, but the, the I want to say it more directly and, and more um, uh, controversially. Uh, the, the cultural story, you know, when you have the truth and the legend, you print the legend. Mm-hmm. We print the legend around Cujo. Mm-hmm. Stephen King totally talks about this novel in interviews from the 80s and interviews afterward. He talks about this novel in the exact same way that he talks about every other novel that we've read, right? Mm -hmm. He tells stories about going out to a place that's really like the Camber's place in the novel. He tells stories of seeing a dog that's like Cujo. He tells a story about imagining what would happen, right? So 100%, I mean, I believe that he does not remember putting words on the page. I think that that's probably correct. But in the sense that, like, we have a cultural imagination, and this is certainly how I have been told this story, and this is certainly how I have replicated the story. You know, I've told this kind of cultural legend myself. There's an imagination around Cujo that he, that Stephen King, um, you know, goes into his studio, blacks out, you know, on, on booze or whatever, and then wakes up and Cujo is there, right? It's, it's so, like, from, as you're saying, right, the, the mind spring of, you know, the darkest reaches of Stephen King's mind. But that's just not true, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he might have been drunk when he wrote this novel, but, uh, you know, so was Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't think that this is uh, particularly any different than any other Stephen King novel. And in fact, you, the, I think that some of his intent around it and the way that he talks about it in things like the Paris interview, the Paris Review interview that we found, um, those are actually maybe a little bit more explicit than some of his other um, things. You know, I don't think we have nearly as 
clear a picture of where Firestarter comes from, Mm -hmm. as we do for Cujo. So it's all legend, I think, you know, as far as our cultural imaginary around where Cujo comes from. Um, And we got to dispel it. We got to get rid of that. Cujo is just a Stephen King novel. Mm Mm-hmm. A pretty good I'm, one. I'm a hardliner. It's a good one. I I think this is a good book. Um, I think this is in top five of what we've read so far in this uh, in this first you know year of just King things. Absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. And I was thinking um, in the run up to recording this, I was thinking how uh, how funny this this episode compared with the last one is going to be uh, because I feel <laughs> like Dan's macabre was really like I, I don't know how you felt, but I think that I think the listeners picked this up is like i was i was fraying pretty badly by the end of that um but like here you know you might think like oh we're just here to like dunk on stephen king from this point on nope like very next book the man writes like what i think is his best novel since the shining yeah i it's it's really good and it's really well put together um and that doesn't mean that like all hopefully if you're a listener of the show you have have pulled this together you know as our reading interpretation that doesn't mean that every part of this novel is like knocking it out of the park amazing representations anything like that because i think there are a lot of just like basic um uh stephen king this is this is a place where two things are happening maybe this is what i'm trying to say Mm -hmm. this is a place where two things are happening if we talked about in the dead zone how stephen king is coming together you know we can see the stephen king kind of of uh, Lego pieces fitting together. This is this is a novel where that is happening even more at an accelerated pace. Um, you know, as you talked about earlier in this episode, there is a lot of melodrama here. Like this thing is put together like a soap opera, mm-hmm. and it's a soap opera with a um, uh, you know with some gross stuff stapled onto it, and then with a with a truly horrifying you know back third or so mm-hmm. stapled onto it. And it's all of Stephen King's, you know, uh, we talked about with um, Dance Macabre, right? Uh, When you've got nothing else, go for the gross out. Mm -hmm. And it goes for the gross out. And Stephen King is, you know, I think Dance Macabre has been very helpful for us, very helpful for me to understand this novel, that I think the worst parts of this novel are when he goes for the gross out, because Stephen King's gross out is now fully a social gross out. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen King is telling you what kinds of people it's okay not to like. Mm-hmm. And um, it show, he, he is using human beings as monsters here, which he's already done a bunch of times, right? But the way that that takes a shape, uh, gosh, what's the, what, who is the, uh, the Stephen King stand-in here? Steve Kemp. Steve Kemp here is a one-dimensional human monster, mm-hmm. like a hundred percent, and he's just—he's bad. He's just awful. He's a bad human being. Um, and I, you know, I don't think we're supposed to read this novel and be like, "Dang, I wonder what Steve Kemp's perspective is on this," right? But maybe we should do the summary before before we dig into. I, more I was going to say, yeah, we should. If we're going to dig into these characters, we should probably turn over to you, the five-second summary. Okay. <clears throat> What are, uh, I don't know anyone's name in this novel again. Great, Hold on. great. You just know them through the way that Cujo apprehends them. The man, the boy, <laughs> the man, the, the woman. boy. Yes, of course. Well, that's the kind of thing you know. I, and you could leave this in too because I, as Stephen King gets more schematic, you don't need to know characters' names, <laughs> right? You know. And this is actually uh, this is uncommon. I finished this novel about uh, I don't know two weeks ago, something like that. I normally finish these books right before we record. 
and I'll say this is why. This is worth leading the show. This is the first Stephen King book that's really gotten me, where I had that, like, one more page. I want to just finish this book. I want to see what happens. Um, you know, I ended up staying up to, like, 2 a.m., <laughs> Like, reading this book, you know, when I was supposed to be uh, asleep because I was like, oh, dang, like, the end of this book is just, like, hammering. Um, it's the first one that's gotten me, you know, that that feeling that you talked about, Michael, I think, uh, in the stand episode, right, where your your mother just read it all in one whack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I had that with Cujo. I was like, dang, I got to get through the end of this. Um, all right. So, uh, all right. I got, got the Trenchons, mm-hmm. the Cambers, and then Steve Kemp. Okay. 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 All right. All right, now that now the summary begins. The summary begins. Donna Trenton is cheating on her husband, Vic Trenton, with a poet tennis player named Steve Kemp. Across town, the Cambers are in a bad relationship and the wife comma charity comma is attempting to leave with her son Brett semicolon they have a dog named Cujo Mm -hmm. Cujo is a St. Bernard who is attacked by a rabid bat, comma, turning him into a murdering machine. Period. Mm-hmm. Due to some mixed-up circumstances that are wild and zany, uh, uh, pr- open parentheses and a little bit unbelievable. <laughs> close parentheses, comma. Donna Trenton and Tad Trenton, comma, the Trenton son, <laughs> comma, <laughs> end up stuck in their car while being attacked by Cujo. Period. Cujo murders a bunch of people, including Tad. Mm-hmm. Open parentheses, due to heat exhaustion, technically. <laughs> Close parentheses. I think that's it. That's five. Okay. Yeah, that is five. And that is that is what happens. Um so, I mean, in, in case you didn't check the content warnings uh, uh, in this episode, if, if, if that's the thing that you do, just know, like, that this is this is the book where the kid dies, right? Like, this is, uh, it, 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 it breaks kind of a, a rule that a lot of people, I think, have in their heads when they go into horror fiction, um, and, you know, horror generally, which is that, you know, kids may be in danger, but they're probably going to get away. Uh, and there are, you know, there, there are examples uh, in, in film and literature where this is not the case, uh, and they tend to be pretty remarkable. And this is one. This is this is not a book with a happy ending. Um, this is a book where the worst, maybe not the worst possible thing that could happen happens, but like of all the things that could happen, a very bad thing happens, and no one is happy it, yeah. in the end. 
it's pretty and pretty famously as we'll talk about in the uh in the bonus episode for this month uh, over on patreon.com slash range touch you can find the description in the link below um pretty famously in the movie they they changed this mm-hmm. and stephen king in fact in his uh original script where he adapted his his own um novel at least in in the first pass uh that was the thing that he thought was critical to change you just cannot kill a child mm-hmm. uh, in the movie. Now, I, I say that um, knowing, and, and I'm sure you've seen the the Thomas Jane vehicle, The Mist, directed by Frank Darabont, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, I guess spoilers for that, it goes out of its way to kill a child mm-hmm. <laughs> in an extremely bleak ending, just overwhelmingly bleak. Um, I am I am itching to get to watching The Mist because <laughs> I want to listen to Frank Darabont uh, ex- talk through that one in the commentary because you know he's got an explanation. Oh man, his I that's going to be so interesting <laughs> to hear. Having just listening listened to him on the Postmortem podcast with Mick Garris. Hey Mick, are you listening? Uh, Mick, uh, we're, we're get on to you. our show, please. Um, also, I'm so glad to hear that you're you're uh, feeling better, Mick Garris. Mm-hmm. Um, also, learned on Mick Garris's postmortem podcast that in January, Mick Garris had a widowmaker widowmaker heart attack that has such a low uh, percentage chance of surviving, and he's doing okay now. Shout out to him. But Frank Darabont was also on a recent episode of that show mm-hmm. that Michael and I um, charitably lost our minds over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so i i having having heard frank darabont like talk about his stuff like i really want to hear him talk about his decision about the mist but um that's a different episode yep uh um but but yeah so this is a you know not i think for the most part this is a novel by numbers Mm -hmm. right like like we were talking about before you know high on melodrama it, it is a um, it is a story about a family that is falling apart because, um, uh, you know, someone decides to cheat on someone else, right? Mm-hmm. And I, the mechanics of it are pretty good. What, what I left out of the summary, you know, hard to fit in five sentences, even with all the machinery that you can do. Uh, the 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 Trentons move to Castle Rock, Maine, from New York because Vic Trenton is an ad man, mm-hmm. and he can uh, he believes he can kind of make it work in rural Maine by, by maintaining a couple national contracts, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is the serial thing. Do you, what th- this feels like, I, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, the serial thing, the sharp serial contract, this whole thing feels like a Michael Lutz construction. I have no idea what I'm supposed to say in response to that. <laughs> I feel like you would, you, it is in within the Michael Lutz, uh, horror toolbox <laughs> to write a story about a beloved serial professor who who ends up basically cursing the country. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. I, I, when you put it that way, I guess I see what you mean. Um, but uh, how how I understand this? So, uh, Vic uh, and his pro- his partner Roger were both uh, admin um, in New York City. And they broke from their agency and started an independent agency that's just the two of them. And their big kind of lifeline contract is the Sharp Serial Company. Uh, And they come up with this mascot called the Sharp Serial Professor and sort of the the hook of the ads. And one of the things that's so fascinating about this book is just like, and I don't even say this to like criticize these ads, right? This isn't a critique of like how ads used to be, but just how dated advertising feels. 
mm-hmm. because it's like this uh, uh, sort of like soft-spoken erudite like professor sitting in front of a class like explaining to the like the kids watching at home like how no nonsense like in no nonsense terms right like here's what is in your cereal and it's okay for you it's healthy it's good like and then his catchphrase is like looking at the bowl of cereal or taking a bite and then saying nope nothing wrong here um, and that becomes like a national like catchphrase, right? And kind of like a, a I don't know if this precedes "Where's the beef," but it's that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I was actually this whole time thinking about "Where's the beef" as like the the best analog for it. And so, yeah, and this is actually I, I just double checked. That's a couple. This is a couple of years before "Where's the beef." Oh my god! They saw the sharp cereal professor, and they were like, "All right, we gotta get some Midwestern women who want to know where that beef is." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hold on, is "Where's the beef" a dirty joke? maybe oh my god <laughs> i've never thought about it before <laughs> they had innuendo in the 80s that's impossible <laughs> i mean we it, invented innuendo in 1994 <laughs> i mean it's funny right it's one of those things where like you go back and like uh there are like you look at say like the history of say the village people right and there's like an entire population of of americans who are listening to the village people who have no idea what is going on and then there are like other people who are not like silent right they're like writing articles and stuff for the newspapers who know exactly what the village people are all about but like those two sides of the country never seem to talk to each other anyway (laughs) (laughs) this is what uh you know when stephen king uh very famously you know in his guns essay said that he wished that uh you know every liberal would watch a little bit of fox news and every conservative watch a little bit of cnn uh i wish that every uh person who doesn't like the village people would engage with the people who love the village people and vice versa. <laughs> um, oh, but anyway, so the, the, to get back to the serial professor, uh, this, is, uh-huh. this ends up biting uh, a Vic uh, in the ass uh, because there is a problem with, so that the, the, the sharp cereal company produces a new type of cereal called like red raspberry zingers. And there is a, a mm-hmm. red dye that is used in them that is defective. And it color like it colors the stools of people who eat it uh, like red. And so suddenly across the country, there are all of these kids who are pooping red and their mothers <laughs> think that it's blood. Uh, and and it, they're vomiting, too. They're yeah. like projectile vomiting red dye. <laughs> so uh, it becomes this like huge uh, national crisis, right? Like a scare. And it turns out that the kids are, are fine. I actually, weirdly enough, it's not clear to me if the projectile vomiting is happening because of the dye. It almost seems like there's just like a, uh, like a seasonal flu or something going around that coincides with this. Um, uh, yeah, I think that it's just like normal illness. Right. Uh, there is an explanation of it somewhere. Right. But yeah, I think that it's just, it just is children who happen to be vomiting, unrelated. Mm-hmm. But when they do it, when they've eaten the cereal, it looks like blood. Right. Um, so like, because the, the, the point ends up being like, this sucks for the company because the, the, the dye was, you know, used by one of their vendors or something, right? They're, they're sort of like, it's one of those things where something went wrong, uh, but it went wrong at a level where kind of the people who uh, are the public face of the company couldn't have controlled it and uh, feel they shouldn't be responsible for it. Um so the the thing that's really important about this, I think, right, is that at the very beginning, uh, it establishes this kind of uh, uh, possibility and the imagery of child death, right? Like from the beginning, oh, yeah. like that is what yeah. this novel is doing is like uh, 
like signaling where it's all going to end, which is that Vic's son is going to die. Right. But like no one like obviously no one sees that because people don't see themselves as being in kind of this plotted novel in this book where things take on symbolic resonance. Uh, but nevertheless, right, that's kind of like what is happening here for me. Right. Is is sort of mm-hmm. like and it's part of that the, the bleakness or the nihilism of, of the book, as you put it, uh, is the fact that it is willing to kind of just be like, yeah, like kids getting hurt child injury right like that's a thing that's going to be at the core here yeah and the the kind of cheating that happens right is that uh why do i keep thinking her name is donna it is her name's not oh it is donna okay (laughs) i don't know why i don't okay her name is donna (laughs) um uh, the the way that that enters in right is that Donna is Vic's wife and is a little bit treated here like uh, furniture in some ways right mm-hmm. like she's just carted from um from New York to rural Maine or like semi suburban Maine coastal Maine mm-hmm. I think right and uh, vacation land and uh it, it feels that way right and so ends up um I don't know how she finds Steve Kemp I don't actually. Is is he is she taking tennis lessons with him originally? I think she is. And I mean, the other thing that's okay. sort of happening here is that we, we're back to Castle Rock, which we mentioned yeah. back in the yeah. dead zone. Um, and Castle Rock comes back here. And in fact, we, we sort of skipped over the beginning of this book, which is about Castle Rock mm-hmm. and how uh, like what type of place Castle Rock is. And it recaps the portion of the dead zone that was set here where Johnny Smith comes because there's a serial killer who is a. Uh, uh, um, murdering women in the town and he finds out it's one of the police uh on the force a guy named frank dodd and dodd uh you know a uh, uh, complete suicide he dies and it becomes he becomes kind of like a, a boogeyman legend in castle rock like kids are telling mm-hmm. each other or like parents uh who want their kids to behave tell their children like be good or frank dodd's gonna come and get you um mm-hmm. and it's kind of this long sort of not not terribly long right it's a couple of pages but it's a long time dwelling on the space and place of Castle Rock, the small town, the Salem's Lot style, like everyone here kind of knows each other. And Donna gets pulled into this as kind of this outsider um, who also like Tad starts going to like day camp or something along those lines. And uh, Vic, because he's, you know, working as a high powered independent ad executive or whatever, uh, is often going on business trips to Portland or even further down to Boston, um, where there's, you know, actual film studios and stuff. Uh, And so she's just kind of like she's alone and she doesn't know what to do with herself. And she kind of feels like like she realizes that like at one point she's pretty explicit about this. She realizes like she's grown up. She's like become an adult and this is her life. yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm of two minds about the way that Donna kind of works here, mm-hmm. right? Because on one hand, it is thin, mm-hmm. um, but, but on the, on the flip side, right? Despite being kind of a, you know, a psychological novel, we spend a lot of time inside people's heads mm-hmm. in this novel. Not, I would say, there's way less dialogue in this book than there has been in certainly in the last few. Stephen King novels that we've read. So what? But so on one side, it's thin in the sense that we spend a lot of time getting um, psychological information that really is just doing melodrama for us, right? So heightened emotions, people feeling, you know, Donna feeling like she's kind of trapped in her life, um, and I think all of those are very familiar if you were like if read romance novels or if you if you watch soap operas or read westerns. Mm-hmm. Westerns often function this way too. Um, 
where there's a lot of characterization, but it's characterization within formats and character types that are very familiar. Um, and I think Donna is a very familiar character of um, this era mm-hmm. of the 1970s, 1980s, dudes writing women. Mm-hmm. Um, so on one hand, I think she's a little bit thin and and archetypal. Um, on the other side, I think this is one of the best times Stephen King so far has done this. Um, you know, we have we have been pretty open about Stephen King's inability to write women um, uh, convincingly, we can say. And, you know, Donna Trenton is a character whose entire life does not uh, revolve around her mother. And that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she's a character who has thoughts and feelings and a will of her own that are not entirely tied to her husband. Um, although it does end up wrapped around that way. But, you know, so I don't think that she's like a, a genre busting figure, but I think within the framework that Stephen King has given us to evaluate how he engages with like, you know, the interiority of women, pretty big, pretty big move here, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and like her, her dissatisfaction with her life, I think is treated very seriously, which mm-hmm. is like. I mean, good. Like, I mean, I think that, like, in this situation, I think you know she she is entitled to to feel kind of uh, angry and ambivalent about her husband and the decisions he's been making about their lives. Yeah, and so she uh, has this kind of uh, fling with this guy Steve Kemp, mm-hmm. um, who is a let me let me uh, list it out here. He's a woodworker, mm-hmm. furniture restoration, furniture restoration. And also a poet. Mm-hmm. And also kind of a vagabond. Mm-hmm. He's going town to town and doing these. Never anywhere very long. Um, Drives a van with a desert scene painted on the side. Oh, Steve Kemp's cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, every... No, he's not cool. He's a, he's an awful character. But the, the package of Steve Kemp as, like, a stock character, right? Uh, especially a stock character out of, like, 1960s cinema, mm-hmm. right? Just, like, the man who is free. Mm-hmm. The fantasy of the man who is free. There's something really interesting going on here. But uh, you and I have had a conversation already about Steve Kemp. What's going on with this character, Michael? Well, you might have noticed, dear listener... Um, that his name is Steve Kemp. Steve Kemp. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Some strange initials going on there. Um, and sort of added to this, we get some physical description of, of Steve Kemp, (laughs) which is that he is six foot five and has a bushy black beard and hair. Yep. Um, and so like... It is just who do we know, Michael? <laughs> who is six foot five with big bushy hair uh, and like black hair and a black beard and everything? Yeah, um, mm-hmm. with the initials SK. Yeah, uh, like and and again, like you know, nothing can be explained through biography or whatever. And in some ways, um, and I say this as you know, a, a trained literary scholar and critic, it's kind of a bad look to be just like, oh, this is an author self insert. But like, this feels like an author self insert, and I feel okay kind of saying that because it is clear that if, if that's what Steve is doing, Steve King, um, if, if that's what King is doing here, uh, he's not doing this because he like wants to live out this fantasy. Like he hates this guy. Yeah, and that's sort of yes. when I, at the beginning of this episode, when I mentioned like you can feel kind of the, um, uh, so to, to continue actually a little bit, um, you posted this, uh, you DM me this on discord. Actually, I just want to uh, continue this. This is from, that same thing in on writing after he mentions, um, you know, not mentioning, or he mentions not uh, remembering writing Cujo. He says, uh, at the worst of it, I no longer wanted to drink and no longer wanted to be sober either. I felt evicted from life. Um, 
And that is like the feeling that I get, especially from kind of the setup of this novel where, uh, Steve doesn't only just like create this character who seems like a weird reflection of him who he has created specifically to kind of like make into a huge asshole who does awful things in this book. Um, He has another character who is a knowing alcoholic and like uh, nihilistic in his knowingness, right? Became an alcoholic, realizes he's an alcoholic and is like, well, fuck it. Like, let the drink kill me. Um, and then there's another character in here who is kind of like a, a, a version of Jack Torrance who never got out of his dad's shadow, right? Who grew up to be kind mm-hmm. of the, the the working class asshole. Um, and so one of the things that I put in the notes uh, is that uh, we have something like what we saw in The Shining with like Jack Torrance and Dick Halloran and um, Ullman, the manager of the Overlook, right? These kind of competing versions of masculinity that actually like fractures out even more here. And we have uh, what almost seems to be Steve kind of fascinatingly like looking into alternative life paths, right? There's the vagabond poet, tennis instructor, furniture restoration guy, right? Kind of the beatnik dream. Um, mm-hmm. There's like the nihilistic alcoholic who's just literally drinking himself to death uh there's the upwardly mobile uh, uh, suddenly world like nationally famous very successful writer slash ad man uh and then there's the extremely bitter controlling violent uh working class mechanic like does stuff with his hands guy um and all of and there's one there's one more too there is Roger, the the version of the man who goes independent, but could fall back into that in any moment, and it wouldn't ruin his life. Yeah. You know, the man who could sell out, and it would be okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, there's, there's like, S- Stephen is clearly kind of thinking through these different types, like, different types of man, right, circa 1981, mm-hmm. um, and there's, there is an attention and detail paid to the various trades that is fascinating to me because we've talked about before that Stephen King loves to write about writers um, because you don't have to really do any research. He loves to write about writers, loves to write about teachers um, because those are things that he's done here. He is talking pretty convincingly, right? I don't think that these are like factually like documentary uh, researched or, or reported or whatever, but he writes pretty convincingly about like, uh, what it means to be an ad executive, right? How does how does that make demands on your time? Uh, there's a bit where he kind of walks through the process of how to restore some old furniture. He talks a bit about uh, uh, mechanics and like how to fix various vehicles. So there is a real strong sense here of of uh, King kind of looking into like other things you could be, right? There there seems to be. I mean, mm-hmm. and again, just to project like. Uh, if, if he is in some sense, if Steve is in some sense, uh, Vic Trenton, right. Who is, uh, overnight suddenly kind of more successful, uh, than he ever dreamed of, but also kind of crumpling to the, the pressures of that success. Um, uh, it seems like he's like, you know, Stephen King is like, well, what if I just, you know, became the bum? What would that guy be like? Well, here's how he would suck. What if I stayed working class? Well, here's how that guy would suck. What if I drank myself to death? Here's how this guy would suck. Right. Uh, it's yeah. Um, well, it, and it's very, you know, kind of contributing to the genre, like the feeling of melodrama. Right. These are all one dimensional characters in that way. Mm-hmm. Right. They get a lot of psychology to them. Right. You, you, we get a lot of explanation of how they think about their world. But these are not characters who are going to have more than one type of reaction to the world around them. Right. They're very linear. Um, you know, they they 
progress and move in very predictable and uh, normal ways. And so, you know, it's almost like here's the types of dude and here's the types of, of dude in the way they're going to interact with other people around them. He's doing a similar thing with the women here too, right? Mm-hmm. We, you know, we get kind of, you know, an obvious parallel, a very obvious parallel between Donna uh, Trenton and then Charity Camber, who is Joe Camber, the mechanic, his wife, um, who are two women who are trapped in in ways that are uncomfortably similar, mm-hmm. right? So Charity Camber is in an abusive relationship where her husband is is keeping her trapped in rural Maine, essentially, and, and preventing her from seeing her family. And she is afraid she is going to kind of lose the soul of her son to, um, you know, a kind of dreamless, you know, we're going to live in the country and be mechanics forever kind of imaginary, right? And she thinks her son can do more. Well, and she, like, recognizes but, yeah. her her husband's form of masculinity as a thing that her son may adopt. Yeah, and it's bad, mm-hmm. right? Because And she knows firsthand because it's violent and, um, and emotionally abusive, you know, physically and emotionally, all these different things, right? Um, and, and obviously, right, this, the, the, there's this kind of comparative going on with entrapment here. Like, Donna Trenton is trapped— but she has a lot of flexibility in being trapped, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Charity Camber is trapped, and there is no flexibility in that, mm-hmm. right? And so it's these kind of two different ways that, um, you know, and I think if one of the failings here, or, you know, if, if there's a core central failing around all of these ways of thinking about kind of uh, gender and relation, right, it's that Stephen King cannot imagine in a relationship between men and women in this book between men and women that is not predicated on men dominating women, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the, there is no way where to go um, in, in that relationship. Very, very uh, pessimistic view of heterosexuality. Um, but so then there's that, but then there's also a third woman too, right? The, um, um, Oh, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, Alva's wife. She um, only shows up a little mm-hmm, bit. Mm-hmm. Alva, the, the chicken farmer who lives down the road from the Cambers. Yes, and the only reason I can remember his name is it's such an odd name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm blanking on her name, but she has an intellectual disability, mm-hmm. and that is made pretty pretty plain. And so she is not only trapped, but is a child mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is a ward of this other kind of you know very minuscule uh, vision of. Um, masculinity, which is yet another type of guy, a chicken guy. Right, right. Sort of the, um, the uh, old hick, like, chicken farmer. And, like, the, the specific remark we made about her is that, you know, like, chicken farming was, like, the extent of her capabilities or something uh, condescending like that. Yeah, she she can't, she doesn't know what day it is mm-hmm. any given day. And not in, like, a funny, uh, you know, she's... Um, Absent-minded. You know, forgetful. Exactly, right. It's not played that way. It is played... Um, you know, that, that she does not have the capability to know what day of the week it is. Um, and so, you know, the, those things are happening at the same time. Um, and the, the way that the, the book gets going here and, and what happens, you know, this is a, gosh, in my version, a almost 400 page novel. But the, the gist of it is, is that um, they lose this account or they think they're going to lose the sharp account. Yeah, because they came up with the, the like ad that's like, nope, nothing wrong here. And then there's just this massive recall health scare thing that gives the lie to their basically their meme that they invented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they got to leave. They got to go fix that. Um, Donna Trenton needs to fix her car. And she's just broken it off with this, this guy she's been cheating with, Steve Kemp. And... Uh, so she she doesn't you know she there's there's this kind of vibe of like needing to to just do something right 
mm-hmm. you know, like, I got it. let's go fix my car. She takes uh, Tad, their child, with her, and uh, in a wild series of events, the the Cambers are no longer there because they have won, uh, Charity Camber won the lottery. She goes off and takes her son, Brett, to um, to Connecticut, I think, to, like, visit her family. Because mm-hmm. she has a and sister, then, her, her sister who married up. Right. Mm-hmm. Her husband's like a lawyer or something. And so like Charity's explicit goal is to take Brett, who's like 10, just by the way, to take Brett uh, somewhere else to show him like how other people can live. Yep. Yes. A hundred. Just like this is what the rest of the world looks like. It doesn't look like rural Maine. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, you know, she goes there, her car stops. And throughout this novel, as we've been learning about the kind of melodrama of the family dynamic with the Trentons, and we've been seeing this kind of like almost escape narrative happening with the Cambers of Charity Camber trying to negotiate being able to go to Connecticut um, to go get around Joe Camber. Um, all of these things beneath that written in between it is the tale of Cujo the dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I think Cujo is a fascinating character. He is. It is fast. I mean, it is fascinating that in this like, m- you know, novel of middle class and working class kind of soap operatic melodrama. Right. Um, all of these sort of class tensions between uh, these different families and the parallelism. Right. Is just so clearly laid out. Uh, you know, mom, dad, kid. Um like the the way that this all works out and threaded through it is the story of this dog told from the dog's point of view. <laughs> yes, yeah, like phenomenologically uh-huh. from a dog. <laughs> and like the other thing that's also fascinating is I was thinking about The Shining throughout um, this entire book for reasons I may get to later. Uh, but like the the that scary dog man. Well, was it was it that Stephen King was like, oh my god, I hit on it with that scary dog man. <laughs> Not even, uh, but that is actually a, a good connection um, for reasons again that I'll get into. But uh, the the thing that is fascinating about the way that Cujo's sections of this book are written is that he has the exact same uh, voice as Danny does in The Shining. <laughs> Where like so, where like Danny would uh, recognize kind of like adult concepts that he doesn't quite understand. He just knows that they're adult concepts. So like when he thinks about Jack's drinking, he thinks about it as the bad thing, and the bad thing shows up in like small caps. Um, and Cujo thinks the same way, right? So Cujo, I guess, if we're like using Stephen King prose uh, orientations to like gauge uh, depth or whatever, uh, Cujo has about the the same interiority as a five year old boy. Um, that's about how he thinks about the world. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's kind of sad. It's extremely sad. Like it, it, you know, you you get to watch. It, there's some parts of it that are really emotionally affecting, and I never thought I would think about that from the first person perspective of a dog in a Stephen King novel. But you know, there's the section that the one that really sticks out to me and works really well in the in the film too, which we'll talk about in the bonus ode. Um, is uh, it's a when they're about to leave. Right when when Brett and Charity are about to leave for Connecticut, and everything is kind of like on a razor's edge, right? Mm-hmm. Anything could go wrong here to keep them from leaving. Right. Well, because Cujo is already rabid. He's already rabid. He, you know, he's bitten literally in the first pages of the novel, and and you know, so this is about two thirds of the way, or a little bit short of that. And we've been getting these sections over and over where you know he's he's you know um, reporting these feelings. You know, Cujo is like. You know, I want to drink water, but I can't drink water, you know, and he can't like uh, prevent himself from like 
um, you know, urinating, right? Like he's losing control of, of his body. He doesn't know why. Right. And so that's always an affecting kind of thing to read. Um, but, but, you know, so he's in the mist and it's the section that's written in two different ways. It's this brilliant, you know, when, when Stephen King is doing the damn thing, it, it really is impressive. So on one side of it, we get Brett's account, right? So Brett's walking through this mist, you know, and it's rural Maine. It's the early morning. There's a swamp near the Cambers property. So you can kind of see all of this coming together. And, uh, it, and so he goes out and he's eating cereal and he can hear something and, uh, Cujo emerges from the mist, right? And he's like 160 pounds, St. Bernard. He's a big-ass dog, mm-hmm. right? And he he's there, and he's looking at him, and Brett can see everything bad here, right? He can see that, that Cujo's foaming at the mouth and that he's like eyes are leaking and all this kind of stuff. He knows something is wrong with the dog, and Cujo's growling at him. Mm-hmm. Cujo, as we have learned throughout the novel so far, is a big teddy bear of an animal, right? Yeah. He's he's good. He's a good dog. There's like a, a an early G. scene where the reason that the uh, the Trentons know the Cambers is because uh, Vic had taken something into Joe like the year previously to get something fixed, and we get a very brief flashback to where they all came and they brought Tad, and Tad was you know like three years old or whatever, and they were scared about this giant dog being around their toddler. But, like, Cujo is effortlessly gentle, right? Picks Tad up before he falls and, like, is just the, he's a good boy, right? Like, that is a yeah. thing that comes back again and again. Cujo was a good dog. Uh, let's, him, let's him ride around on his back, mm-hmm. all these kinds of things, right? Um, and and so, you know, Tad, or, uh, not Tad, uh, Brett sees this and is like, oh, God, something's wrong with my dog. Cujo's growling. And then we get the flip, right? We go into Cujo's perspective, and it it takes everything in the willpower of this animal, right, to recognize the boy, mm-hmm. right, which is what the word he constantly uses. And, and again, and like you were saying, those small caps. And he recognizes the boy, and he uses everything to turn away. And it's in that moment, right, that he loses control of himself, essentially, right? That's the last... Uh, moment of willpower that Cujo has before he's given over entirely to rabies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works like this, this moment works beautifully. And even the kind of payoff to it, which is that Brett goes in and says, something is wrong. You know, he's talking to his mother and says, something's wrong with Cujo. Something's wrong with my dog. Um, and then she says, well, you can't tell your father because if you do, right, if you, if you have this moment of empathy and, and care for your dog, it will ruin all of my plans. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and this kind of like back and forth around, you know, selfishness and care is all shot through this the story of the Cambers. Right. Um, you know, what do you have to give up in order to care for someone? Right. And and or what kind of care do you have to give up in order to make a better world? I think those are that's shot through this entire story. Right. Well, what she says specifically, because her fear is that uh, when because she's worked, she's had to do. She used her lottery winnings to buy a machine for Joe in order to Mm -hmm. as like basically a bargaining chip. Right. I have I won the lottery. Mm -hmm. I did this for you. Now let me take Brett somewhere else. And she immediately thinks that like because Joe is capricious and selfish. Uh, it, the second she's just like the second she hears that Cujo might be sick, her immediate thought is like Joe's going to hear that and he's going to use it as an excuse to keep us here. Yep, yep. And she has to have sex with him too, mm-hmm. right? So there's this there, this uh, additional layer too. Um, but but the the reason I'm I'm narrating all this is both I think really powerful scene. I think it really the perspective shift is really important. But on the flip side. This or the the other thing, not the flip side. The other thing that's important here is this is the exact same move that hits so hard at the end of The Shining, mm-hmm. 
right, of Jack Torrance having one final moment of of saving someone, right? He saves Danny, and then he's lost forever. Mm-hmm. Right? He's just he, he's this chittering kind of avatar of the house at that point or of the hotel. Um, and same thing is happening here in Cujo, right? So we're we're seeing this kind of uh, you know quiver of of affects or whatever, right? Quiver of of situations maybe that Stephen King is dipping back into, but it works. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't feel like a retread. It it, it feels uh, uh, efficient, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know I'm, I'm elaborating all of this to point out that we're going to see this more and more often. I think we're going to see more and more Stephen King going into his particular kind of lexicon of types of characters Mm -hmm. um i think a lot of characters we're going to see from here on out are showing up in this book um and then a kind of a lexicon of or or you know um uh, a toolbox of situations and kind of emotional registers Mm -hmm. and those are, are happening here too um the all of this happens people are leaving they end up stuck here uh um uh, Donna and Tad end up stuck here. Cujo has already murdered Joe Camber. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's murdered Gary Pervier, the, the alcoholic you were talking about before, mm-hmm. Michael. Joe Camber's crappy and- friend who's like the nihilistic <laughs> war veteran. Yeah. Who's also, uh, did you who- catch this, is implied to be uh, uh, dying slowly of lead poisoning. Oh, I didn't know of lead poisoning. It, I did get that he was implied to be dying because he's like hurting all the time and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I got the sense that. No, why lead poisoning specifically? So when the sharp cereal thing happens, Vic is kind of like ruminating on like, he, he's basically trying to talk himself up and he's like, you know, this sort of thing has happened before, like other company, like, you know, some of them have been really bad, but other companies have come back from recalls. And one of the ones that he thinks of is specifically a, a set of um, promotional glasses that were given out at McDonald's restaurants um, oh. that had turned out to have lead in the paint. Uh, and... Earlier in a chapter when uh, Gary Pervier is sitting out because he's like he's his lawn is like filled with garbage. Right. And he like throws shit through his windows and he just sits in like this decrepit lawn chair and and drinks screwdrivers all day. Right. That's what Gary Pervier is up to. Um, And it's mentioned that he drinks his screwdrivers out of glasses that he got at McDonald's a couple of years before. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's like talking about I mean, the man is dying of a a lot. Mm -hmm. It seems like too. right? Right. He's killing himself with uh you know alcohol consciously too. yeah 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 very much purposefully um and uh but anyway so uh Cujo goes over kills that guy just mauls him to death um joe camber comes and finds him uh finds the dead guy Cujo is hiding in the basement at that point mm-hmm. which is an amazing like goofy stephen kingism right like what would be scarier than a dog a giant scary dog in the basement well he becomes a slasher movie villain right yeah, hundred percent. Right, <laughs> he fits in a different uh, kind of um, genre taste here, um, and uh, but uh, you know everything pays off in the kind of cultural imaginary. These two people in a broken down car um, being hounded by a dog, ha ha ha, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm laughing at the pun, mm-hmm. not the <laughs> the people being attacked by the dog. Um, while her husband, right, while Vic is being an ad man, and that cuts back and forth, right? He's like doing this, you know, advertising stuff, and ultimately, right, because they're stuck in this car, it's hot. Um, it's the hottest know, summer in in years. It's supposed yes. to be. We get our little Salem's Lot chapters of like the characters mm-hmm. in the town talking about what a hot summer it's going to be, and it turns out they're correct. 
Alva's chickens die, mm-hmm. right? And there are all these kind of like um, happenstance moments. Very Salem's Lottie here too, right? Of like um, Charity calls Alva to ask him to go check because she hasn't heard from Joe, her husband Joe in a few days. And he says, yeah, I'll go check later today. And then his air conditioner for his chicken house dies. And so he has to spend the rest of the day dealing with that to save his chickens. Mm-hmm. And so he never goes and checks. And so they're there another day. Um, and, you know, it's all these like small moments. The the mail is canceled for the day, mm-hmm. right? And so, or, or because Joe Camber was going to leave too. I was going to say that's that's the other thing that it's difficult and it's a lot to explain. But this novel is so much about like the ways that small decisions or like small incidents in people's lives like lock together in just the right way for this horrible, horrible thing to happen. Yeah, I mean, Char- this whole novel won't work if Charity Camber doesn't win the lottery, mm-hmm. right? It needs that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like uh, she like she wins the lottery, uh, and Joe hap- like she doesn't know this, right? But like when she tells Brett, "Don't tell your father about Cujo," what she doesn't like, what's tragic about that, right? What's ironic about that is she doesn't know that even if Brett tells Joe, he's not going to make them stay because Joe has secretly made plans to go to Boston with Gary Pervier because he thinks this mm-hmm. is a chance to, you know, like uh, go out, go to the combat zone, right? Which is what the they used to call the the like adult entertainment district in Boston. Um, so, like, all of these, like, characters having little secrets or, like, little tiny, like, motivations or things that aren't known to other people all kind of constellate in such a way that uh, Donna and Tad are going to be stuck in, in the pinto. Yep. And we just get these long passages of Cujo um, knowing what he's doing, right? Like, this, like, good dog has turned into infinite bad dog, and he can, like, predict what she's going to do. You know, he's, like, showing reasoning and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and, you know, so every time she tries to step out of the car, he's there. Um, he bites her very early, so she's bleeding. Um, you know, he's rabid, mm-hmm. so she's working on that, too, and knows that, that that's going to be happening there. And, um, you know, I think it's really harrowing, part of the book what do you make of the other plot that's happening at the same time like the steve kemp going to the house all that stuff well again it's it's about the small things so steve kemp um donna has broken it off with him uh because she breaks it off with him uh steve who is like an awful person right like uh, he is vindictive. He It's mentioned that, like, whenever he loses a tennis match, he will not shake, right? He is a sore loser. Um, and mm-hmm. so he is extremely irate over Donna breaking things off with him. In fact, he he uh, uh, tries to, like, sexually assault her, and she fights him off. Like, that's how they sort of mm-hmm. break it off. Um, and he uh, writes an anonymous letter to Vic, sends it to him at his office, explaining that they've had this affair uh vic gets it he's upset so he and donna uh after if this is you know in in the run-up to vic having to go off for the sharp serial meeting um so he and donna are kind of stretched very thin uh she kind of you know he he wants to know what's going on she kind of gives as much reasoning as she can but also vic is leaving like the next day or something um so he goes off and then she's uh out with tad in the pinto trapped by cujo uh, Steve Kemp um, has kind of, uh, you know, he, he's he's let kind of his anger boil up. And so he drops by the house again to try and see, uh, you know, like to harass Donna or harass Vic or whoever. He finds the house empty. And so he uh, trashes the whole place. 
Um, he like masturbates over the bed, right? We get we get a brief thing about like how going like breaking into the house and like wrecking it is like a, a, a sexually thrilling experience for him. Uh, and then there's a note that Donna has like written on a chalkboard or a slate or something that's like, you know, gone to the Cambers, like be back soon or whatever. Um, and he erases that and writes some sort of taunting message. Um, so what this all means is that by the time Vic gets back, uh, to, um, to Castle Rock, uh, because he eventually thinks something is up too, right? Because Donna is not answering the phone at like any time of the day. He can't figure out what's going on. And he thinks he's thinking like, oh my God, she's left you, right? She, she waited for you to leave and now she's gone back to Kemp and she's taken Tad and they've run off and left you. So he's feeling really bad about that, but he gets home. Or no, what happens is he calls the cops, I think. They check the house, mm-hmm. yeah. and they find out that it's been trashed. So then he is coming back home, because now he's thinking, oh, like, they weren't, like, like they, she didn't leave with him willingly, like, they've been kidnapped. And because he has uh, erased from the slate, like, the, the, the note that they went to the Cambers, no one thinks to check the Cambers. And that means that there's like an additional day that Donna and Tad are trapped by Cujo, which is the one day that Castle Rock needs to kill Tad. Yeah, basically. Because that is like Michael's big idea, right? Uh, this is The Shining, except the the thing that animates uh, the the sort of narrative is not the, the, the ghostly hive intelligence of the Overlook Hotel. It is... A similar thing, uh, but it is the town of Castle Rock. It's not a hotel. It is this town. Yeah, and, uh, you, you know, what's interesting there is that, I mean, I guess it's operating on the same principles, right? That, um, the, you know, the dry battery, mm-hmm. you know, that, that Stephen King calls it, right? That something so bad can happen somewhere that it kind of gets locked in there. And that's why there's this weird thing, and people talk about this novel, and I saw a little bit of discussion about this when I was doing, you know, the the small amount of research that we do around this, that, uh, you know, some people argue or, or I don't know, assert that Cujo is possessed by Frank Dodd. Mm-hmm. And there is, I guess, some implication of that here. But I, I don't I don't read this novel as, as being about that. But but I do think that it, and, I, and I take that to be not that Frank Dodd is literally possessing Cujo, but exactly the idea that you're talking about here. Right. That like these bad things are imprinted in such a way that they influence one another mm-hmm. right, and create conditions to allow each other to exist. Right. But, um, you know, Castle Rock is never going to be the Overlook Hotel, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason. And really the Overlook Hotel is only able to do what it does because Danny is there to kind of facilitate it, right? Mm-hmm. I guess that if Danny shows up to Castle Rock, then you might end up with a situation where Frank Dodd literally comes back. Um, but uh, but but what's interesting to me is that, you know, and I wrote this in the notes, this is probably the best place to put it, this is the first non-science fiction Stephen King novel. And the reason I say that is that, um, weirdly enough, it is the most kind of um, scientifically explainable mm-hmm. in the sense that, like, it's just dog with rabies, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's no—you don't have to come up with, like, telekinesis or anything like that to get to Cujo. Um, but, but the reason I say that is that there are these sections in the early part of the book where Tad is looking in his closet and can see a monster— and then his his parents, the Trentons, are, like, in there occasionally, and they're relating these anecdotes about, like, yeah, I could, like, smell something weird in there, like an animal, and, and the door, you know, closed behind me, and I felt like there was something in here with me. The, the 
book is pretty clear that there's something weird going on in Tad's closet. Mm-hmm. Like, there is a monster literally in there. And that kind of gets sublimated or, or I don't know, transpositioned into Cujo, quite literally, right? You know, Tad's like, oh, the monster's real, all this kind of stuff. But there is a, a supernatural phenomenon that is going on in Tad Trenton's closet that is not explainable by any kind of science fictional apparatus. Normally, Stephen King would spend a lot of time explaining this to us mm-hmm. and, like, how it happened and why it happened and, like, what part of TK research <laughs> makes it clear that it could happen. None of that here. It is purely a monster in the closet without explanation. Um, and, I, you know, so I think this puts it into the realm of the first, like, truly supernatural, non-science fiction Stephen King horror novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, what's fascinating about that i agree uh is that uh how how all of that relies on kind of a an ambiguity as you said there is there is a very specific and like reasonable explanation for what happens here in an uh in an interview or one of the interviews that we've read uh stephen king says that he wanted this to be kind of a tv movie of the week um Mm -hmm, which it very much feels like right very much that sort Mm -hmm. of stripped down thriller like kind of, you know, here's a concept, here's some characters, now let's watch what happens. Um, But then the framing of it, uh, through this, like, weird little prologue about the history of Castle Rock and, like, the legend of Frank Dodd and how that, like, bubbles up around the town, uh, that leads right into uh, Tad in his bedroom uh, freaking out about the monster in his closet and then how the monster is described. And this is sort of, you know, the narrative voice, like explaining kind of how Tad is imagining like the monster thinking to him Um, after the parents come in and and settle him down. Right. It, uh, it grinned at him, right. And it's huge shoulders bulked above its cocked head and its eyes glowed Amber alive with stupid cunning. I told you they'd go away, Tad, it whispered. They always do in the end. And then I can come back. I like to come back. I like you, Tad. I'll come back every night now, I think. And every night I'll come a little closer to your bed and a little closer until one night before you can scream for them, you'll hear something growling, something growling right beside you, Tad. It'll be me and I'll pounce and then I'll eat you and you'll be in me. Uh, which is exactly the way that the Overlook talks to Danny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a scene, like, later on where uh, Tad has a dream, and he sees a boy uh, with a sort of uh, uh, taped-up baseball bat um, mm-hmm. who kind of is, like, swinging, and then he kind of, like, knocks it on the ground or something and sort of looks disappointed. And Tad becomes convinced that that boy is him when he grows up, which is exactly what danny realizes about tony in the shining yeah and it turns out that donna uses that baseball bat uh to kill cujo except um whereas you know tony was kind of like the the vision of my future self come to save me um this vision that tad has is ambiguous because he's seen brett camber doing this exact same thing it's brett camber's bat that uh, uh donna's going to use um, yeah. So it's specifically mentioned that this is like a thing that Tad has seen. So he may just be, you know, doing the dream thing and recycling his memory. But also, maybe Tad's got a bit of The Shining. Because doesn't Vic start having dreams about something weird going on with Donna and Tad? But then again, yeah. maybe he's just stressed out, right? There, there's this wonderful ambivalence between like the psychological horror and the supernatural explanation that I just think is incredible about this book. 
Yeah, and it, I, I guess my, my feelings here, too, because I actually had the same feeling while reading. I was like, is there, especially that, that vision, I was like, is this The Shining? Mm-hmm. You know, is this is this The Shine? But then also, you know, I was thinking, if it were The Shining, Stephen King would not be able to take his foot off the gas, Mm-mm. right? Like, I, I think that we have, have seen that, that he can't help himself when it comes to over-explanation. And so, like, knowing Stephen King's own vices when it comes to this kind of thing made me go the other way. But no, I had the exact same thought i was like ah, oh, this might be the shining mm-hmm. i might be you know but it, it is uh his own uh inability or, or decision not to uh <laughs> elaborate that made me go the other way mm-hmm. but but yeah absolutely um cujo fights these people a bunch of times you know it's really really harrowing difficult um eventually sheriff bannerman shows up mm-hmm. good old sheriff bannerman from the dead zone from the dead zone gets immediately murdered mm-hmm. <laughs> like like it's like he's in the book for five pages he gets murdered mm-hmm. and he he's also the one when uh cujo is like bearing down on him and he looks up and the other thing to note about cujo is yeah, that as yes yeah he's like deteriorating like physically um and he looks awful horrible right he's not just like foaming but he's been like hurt by this point he's been like smashing his face into the door of donna's car again like jack at the end of the shining smashing in his own face with the with the rope mallet um Mm -hmm. and when bannerman sees cujo he's like he says he thinks about frank dodd he's like oh so they couldn't keep you in hell huh yeah yeah i think this is the part where people are like oh yeah he's frank dodd um but uh yeah so he gets murdered he gets showed up and it's actually because he never reports back right mm-hmm. they're, that they're finally like oh vic puts it all together and he's like oh my gosh gotta get there but in that moment uh, so kind of two things happen at the at the very end one vic is rolling up you know he's, he's on his way and two donna is finally like you know this is make it or break it tad's been having seizures mm-hmm. um you know all this kind of stuff and she's so she gets out grabs the the baseball bat kills Cujo with it mm-hmm. it's just bludgeoning him to death Vic comes up runs in while she's still bludgeoning this dog and you know is like oh he's dead and this is like the truly like nightmarish part of the book mm-hmm. because she she begins uh trying to resuscitate this child and does so for 30 minutes mm-hmm and like won't allow anyone to get near him. The paramedics come and this child is dead. Like there's no question uh, about it. And she like, won't let them come. They have to like get a bunch of people to come pull her off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, she has become this kind of, you know, rage filled, you know, guilt machine. Um, and just striking out at everyone. She bites someone. Yeah. She's right? described and, as growling and yeah. Um, and like this, that whole thing to me is just horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the breakdown of a human being, um, you know, in this moment of just absolutely night nightmarish trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that King does a, I, I think it's good to stick with it because I think that you have to, if you're going to kill Tad at the end of the book, which is just, you know, like you, like we were saying before, just absolute nihilism, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to do that, then you have to be responsible to plane it out in some ways, I, I think. I think you can't just be like, and the child is dead and the book is over. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does it. You know, he plays it t- to the hilt. And, you know, this is the the not quite beginning. You know, I think Firestarter had some of this too, but 
there's going to be a lot of dead kids in Stephen King going forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's because he is, he's got young children himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, he's obviously thinking through his own life and what he would do and what he would think about and how he would deal with this kind of situation. And um, it's, you know, pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I especially love, you know, that it's like, we, we come back to the Trentons months later, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's a there's a break, and it's like, you know, yeah, they're still together, but how's that going to work? Right? You know, how's that going to go? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's uh, excellent. I think the, the the last fifteen pages or so of this book is is really something to. It, it is a lesson in how to to end a story. This is one where Stephen King did it. <laughs> One positive note, I I, I'll agree, actually, yes. So, first of all, like, this actually has an ending. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Steve can do it. Um, and the sort of second part is that there is, like, one small note of hope, which is that uh, uh, Brett and Charity come back, and the, you know, oppressive figure in their lives is gone. Uh, obviously, it's kind of difficult because he was also the one who like made the money and supported them. But they have a little bit of their savings from uh, the the lottery, and then also they sell his equipment and stuff. And we just get kind of a scene with uh, Brett and Charity at home uh, that winter, kind of you know preparing to make it through things. And she gets him a puppy, which uh, I guess he's sort of happy about. I mean, he is happy about it. I would think it would feel rather soon, but I, I, I sort of understand maybe the impulse to have, like, here are two characters who might have something ahead of them from this point forward, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's, a, uh, you know, a possibility of the future mm-hmm. happening. Um, Other stuff, I, we're, we're a little bit short on time here, but uh, other stuff that stuck out to you in, in the book that we want to talk about that we haven't... haven't uh, done here no 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 i think i i mean i made the points that i wanted to make which is that like i think you see here king like working through not only um sort of genre modes right like sort of a a, a psychological thriller with some realism versus like this weird supernatural element that he's pulling in from almost like the background of his previous works uh mm-hmm. like the, the 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 sort of logic of the overlook and also uh uh, other things like th- the fact that like this is the point where king is like okay i'm going to write more castle rock stories is kind of the the other thing that i think is interesting here yeah i think it's the, kind of the real birth of the kingiverse right i mean we've we've seen little bits of references and things like that uh, especially around tk and and all that kind of stuff but you know this is one of the, this begins as a kind of sequel mm-hmm. right but like uh, this kind of conceptual sequel right or uh, uh, a geographical sequel more than anything else mm-hmm. um and but you know this is where he's saying i'm going to be writing novels that directly like plot points hinge on you knowing some stuff about what happened in the other ones mm-hmm. Um, the, the other one thing I wanted to mention is that, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Stephen King's relationship to class and this book has some like big swings here. This is probably Stephen King's like most, um, I don't know, white trash exploitation, Uh you know, is maybe the best way of putting it right. You know, he, it's poverty porn, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the one that really stuck out to me, you know, cause he's trying to give us this kind of picture of rural Maine, not just as like the pace, the place of like wholesome farmers like Alva, right. But of like moral decay, decrepitude, right. Mm -hmm. The place where people don't see, you know, um, 
for Stephen King, the countryside is a little bit like, a, you know, the basement or of the overlook, right? Or mm-hmm. the boiler room. Mm-hmm. It's a place where things are always going to be happening that are nightmarish and hidden. And, you know, so uh, uh, Pervier murdering, you know, killing himself with alcohol out here. The Cambers domestic abuse happening out here, you know, literally at the end of a dead end road. Mm-hmm. You can't go further out. Because mm-hmm. they closed um, the but, dump. The dump used to be at the end of the road. <laughs> yeah, the dump used to be there. Um, but but this is the one that really hit me. This is on 186 of my page. Um, they're writing about driving out there, right? And uh, it talking about the road. It wound past two or three nice houses, two or three not-so-nice houses, and in one old and shabby Road King trailer sitting in a crumbling concrete foundation. Some uh, For, for uh, canny listeners slash readers, you might think about the way that Stephen King wrote about the trailer park in Salem's Lot here. Mm-hmm. That, that's also key. Um, there was a yard full of weeds in front of the trailer. Donna could see a cheap-looking plastic toys in the weeds. A sign nailed askew to a tree at the head of the driveway read, Free Kittens. Um, it's misspelled by the way, or mis, uh, grammatically incorrect. Mm-hmm. Uh, a pot-bellied kid of maybe two stood in the driveway, his sopping, sopping pamper hanging below his tiny penis. Mm-hmm. His mouth hung open and he was picking his nose with one finger and his navel with another. Looking at him, Donna felt a helpless chill of goose flesh. Like you, you, you don't get more poverty porn than that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, only if like. Two people were beating each other in the front yard. You know, could you could you hammer home that? And that's still happening. It's just in the Cambers kind of situation. So, you know, this is really Stephen King. You know, when he's going for the gross out, it's not just a gross out as far as like interpersonal things or like you know Steve Kemp and and the way he kind of thinks about the world. It is the G, the the portrait of geography here is also the gross out. Mm-hmm. Um, Cujo's violence can only happen in a place like this. Um, and when we get to something like it, and, and really when we get to Dairy Maine, I think actually is when that's going to flip, and it's the urban itself that produces this, mm-hmm. as opposed to the rural. And it's a, a, something to pay attention to, I think, going forward is how does Castle Rock get used, and then how does Dairy get used as the kind of two big main locales that Stephen King bounces back and forth from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we're going to see some some interesting stuff there. I think I think Dairy is host to stuff. That doesn't quite fit in Castle Rock, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, we, we got some segments. Mm-hmm. So we'll start with my favorite Kingism, which is the part of the show where we each pick out uh, one sentence or a little bit of prose or what have you that we think is particularly indicative of King's prose style and and um, the pleasures and sometimes the dis- displeasures of reading him. I chose uh, a version of a kind of Kingism that we've seen before which is the, we should come up with a name for this, uh, but like the, the, the thing that, that Steve will do where he'll uh, kind of casually shoot out a big piece of foreshadowing um, that just sort mm-hmm. of locks down a scene and then we move on. Um, and it's almost always like, and then he never saw so-and-so again. Uh, he's always he never saw his father alive again is I think used in this book yeah that's that's uh, always the kind of thing um, so my version of this uh, for this particular book comes from a scene where so charity has won the lottery and in order to kind of butter up Joe she's going to uh, purchase a piece of equipment he needs for his mechanic shop and have it delivered and uh, we get a very brief section that is from the perspectives of the two delivery men who are dropping this off and they, it happens that Charity and Brett are out, and so is Joe. So the, the house is empty. The only person around is Cujo. And Cujo is starting to go by this point. 
And so the delivery men uh, encounter Cujo. They're very weirded out, uh, but they drop off the equipment and they're like, something's wrong with that dog. Oh, man. Uh, weird. Uh, but then they get in their truck and they sort of, you know, uh, jet off. Um, so they, you know, spend the time driving back, kind of like talking themselves down because they were both so, so weirded out by that dog. They, they talk about how maybe they should tell someone, but really, you know, whose job is it? And that's another one of those, um, bits of this novel where like, if someone had made a phone call, right, if one of these guys had been like, you know, I'll leave a note or like, I'll, I'm going to call this guy later and let him know something's wrong with his dog. All of this might have been avoided, right? It would not have maybe worked out in the way it did. Uh, but these guys decide, no, it's not really our problem. Like, whatever's wrong with that dog, we're not going to deal with it. Um, and then they get back to work. They, you know, finish up their shifts and then they clock out and then that section ends Neither of them thought about Cujo again until they read about him in the paper. Very good. Mm -hmm. uh, nightmarishly uncanny moment just now. So I, uh, uh, when I began recording this, my wife went on a walk. Mm -hmm. And normally that takes her about 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did not hear her come back while we were doing this recording. And slowly but surely over the past like 20, 30 minutes, I've been like, building up panic about that and then now we're, and we're talking about Cujo this whole time and I've been like slowly building panic about it and I like texted her she didn't text me back and I've been slowly building up panic about it and uh and like while you were talking about that I was like oh my god I have to go figure out what happened <laughs> I, have to, I have to leave this room I'm like I've like begin physically sweating like uh like truly getting deep anxiety about it and and the irony of something bad happening while we're talking about this book, like, was really getting to me. It was the irony specifically. I was like, oh, my God, I can't. Um, and so I just went, and yeah, she's, like, in the other room, so it's perfectly fine. But <laughs> <laughs> your wife went out, bought a Pinto, got trapped in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was like, oh, my God, I like, can't, cannot. But the, there was, like, a weird oppressive um, anxiety and fear building there. <laughs> Um, my favorite part of the book, <laughs> my favorite Kingism, uh, is, uh, <laughs> uh, the very end here actually. So, um, uh, it's when they're like kind of, uh, cleaning everything up there. There's a, a real nightmare situation here too, that we haven't really mentioned where Tad, uh, was afraid of that monster in his closet and his dad wrote down these monster words mm -hmm. to help, uh, get rid of it. And Tad took those monster words with him and he's been like, looking at them the whole time while he's you know being attacked by Cujo and in any other novel right he would be okay like the monster words would in some way pay out to something mm -hmm. but the monster words in this book just pay out to pure nihilism where they don't do anything and literally his father as he's looking at his dead child looks at these words that he wrote down mm -hmm. right and you know crumples them up and throws them away because they they did nothing but you know there's something deeply bleak about that just absolutely but that's not my favorite kingism here my favorite <laughs> kingism is this kind of um weird move to to kind of third person that happens so we get vic having that moment but then um we get this paragraph this is on 381 in my book um he let himself be led to the police car that's vic they drove him away as george bannerman and tad trenton and donna trenton had been driven away before him after a while, a veterinarian came in a panel truck. She looked at the dead dog, then donned long rubber gloves and brought out a circular bone saw. The cops, realizing what she was going to do, turned away. The vet cut off the St. Bernard's head and put it in a large plastic 
or a large white plastic garbage bag. Later that day, it was forwarded to the state commissioner of animals where the brain would be tested for rabies. So Cujo was gone too. And like, that's just, that's just, that's fucking writing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's King as a stylist Mm -hmm. knocking it out of the park. And like, I, I think it's, uh, this is partially why I was so interested in kind of myth busting at the beginning of this episode is that I don't think we need to let Stephen King get off with this being like the novel. He doesn't remember writing because the style, the, the stylistic touches here are not like the, you know, uh, booze ravings of, of a drunkard mm-hmm. here, right? Like there's real stylistic choice happening here. Um, and I think he should get credit for it. This is the most elegant novel he has written since Carrie. Easily, easily, stylistically, aesthetically, um, structurally, you know, it has this very kind of crystalline structure where all these pieces, you know, it's a kind of like a buckyball, right? Mm -hmm. It's all of these joints that are all touching together, um, and kind of spinning out from one another. Um, and this whole, this, like I said, the whole last 50 pages beautifully written Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, and beautifully bleak too, because, you know, these people have to keep living and, um, you know, in a Stephen King novel, sometimes that's the worst part. Mm Mm-hmm. What in the Kingiverse? Uh, we've actually had to, we've touched on a lot of this indirectly, but this is the segment where we just kind of unpack or note any references to other Stephen King works that uh, we happen to notice. And, uh, you know, this this novel, more than any other up, up to this point, is uh, putting, putting those connections up front in the plot in ways that mean we've already talked about them. Um, but if there's anything else you wanted to add, I'd be interested in hearing it. Uh, no, I think we talked about them all. Sheriff Bannerman, you know, being a character, Castle Rock explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, One thing I'll add, um, I already mentioned that, you know, whatever's happening in Castle Rock is something like the Overlook, right? This kind of just the dry battery or the, the, the thing that makes bad stuff happen, right? The force that wants that, that desires it, that exists in those conditions. Um, one of the ways that the, myst- the, the legend of Frank Dodd is described is that, uh, you know, you'll see him one day uh, in his in his black rain slicker, which he always wore, um, but his face, like, in, in his face, he'll have silver eyes, um, which is mm-hmm. precisely the way that uh, you can recognize uh, manifestations of it in it, right? Pennywise mm-hmm. has silver eyes. Um, so King is already kind of like, again, like teeing up certain things, or I don't think he's necessarily doing this, right? I think kind of this is like an image occurs to him and then he reuses it maybe later. Um, but we, you, you can see him uh, here between like the dead zone and it, or like the shining, the dead zone and it, like building the idea for it kind of in the background of these books. Yeah. Doesn't Frank Dodd have silver eyes in the dead zone? Cause it's his glasses. Isn't oh, that true? Maybe I don't remember that part. That might be the case though. I, I don't know. I don't know why I think maybe I'm just wrong, mm-hmm. but, but that's an interesting, I mean, I think you're right. Like the fascinating thing there is that it becomes a, uh, serial kim- killer image that becomes a nightmare image that becomes it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I mean, while that's what I was going to say, uh, too, when you were reading that kind of passage from the monster in the closet, that's, that's it mm-hmm. talking, you know, mm-hmm. as far as like the way that that character, that entity interacts with other people, it, it talks in that kind of, 
I don't know, over familiar maybe mm-hmm. um, uh, form. But yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing all the, you know, we, we've talked about this before. Stephen King is, he takes puzzle pieces and puts them together, Legos, mm-hmm. and puts them together novel ways. And that's how he puts together these books. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it is a composite kind of uh, fixation in that way too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's going to be interesting to think about how that kind of plays out into the dark tower too. We mm-hmm. inevitably like in a million years get to where all these things run together. But um, yeah, no, that's, I guess something we're thinking about. Not a lot of dark towery kind of stuff yet. Mm-hmm. No, even though he's already into that as far as writing some of those stories, but we will not talk about that for a few months. Yeah. Michael here cutting in on my own uh, because there is actually one interesting King of Earth fact that I knew that I forgot to put in the show doc and I forgot to bring up uh, with this discussion uh, with Cameron. And he told me after I, after we recorded and I remembered this, he told me I absolutely had to put it in. You may wonder, where does the title of this book come from? What the heck is Cujo? Well, Cujo uh, is a misprinting of the code name taken by William Wolfe. Uh, who was one of the founding members of the Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, the the sort of radical terrorist uh, group in the, in the 60s and 70s that uh, kidnapped Petty Hearst, and you will recall uh, had a great impact on the development of The Stand and the development of the character of Randall Flagg. So this is uh, another example of uh, kind of... Uh, one of King's fixations coming back around and uh, appearing in, in this novel. And in fact, it's lampshaded at one point where I believe Donna thinks to herself, why on earth does Joe Camber have a dog named after someone from the SLA? That question is never answered. It's just allowed to hang there. Uh, and uh, now I leave you with it. Next segment is Uncle Stevie's mixtape, uh, the segment where we go through the uh, songs that were mentioned in this book, and we review them. Um, it's a very short mixtape this time, um, just three three tunes. The first one I took, uh, it's the traditional song, Old Blue. Uh, this is a song about a, a dog um, dying, uh, you know, sort of a mournful song about that. Uh, I listened to the Joan Baez version, um, which is good because Joan Baez has an incredible voice, so like four stars. Mm-hmm. Uh... <laughs> I had, uh, I, you know, I'll just do these two real quick back to back. I got uh, the Grateful Dead's <laughs> Sugary, um, which is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Steve one Kemp star. loves it. Steve Kemp loves it. Um, and maybe that's the one place where uh, Steve is distancing himself from Steve Kemp. He's like, you might think this is a self-insert, but I like rock music. <laughs> yeah. And Steve Kemp likes the Grateful Dead. <laughs> So we could never be the same. Um, but, uh, yeah, the song is awful. Like every piece of Grateful Dead music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, there are very few groups that I have less patience for than the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I do like Touch of Grey quite a bit. Uh, they're, you know, one chart single that they did in the <laughs> 80s. Uh, and the reason I like it so much is the music video, which is just a bunch of um, skeletons being, <laughs> like, um, muppeted around. <laughs> And it's great. It's a pretty good song too. But uh, sugary, no, no good. Uh, one star. Mm-hmm. And then I got Gene Autry's "Back in the Saddle" again, which is I thought might be the original to Aerosmith's "Back in the Saddle," <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's not. These are unrelated songs. I was hoping the same thing. <laughs> yeah, no, different songs, which is interesting. Um, you know, if you ask me to rate the Aerosmith song, uh, three stars. 
No, pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, not, nothing. But uh, this Gene Autry saga, we're going to give it four stars. It's got like a really weird chorus. I can't find the... Maybe I can find the lyrics really quick. Uh, Autry uh, lyrics. I wanted to read like the uh, chorus here. Yeah. Um, the chorus is this. Whoopie tie I-O, rocking to and fro, back in the saddle again. Whoopie tie I-A, I go my way, back in the saddle again. And if that's not a four-star chorus, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got a little bit of uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape update for people, too. Um, I've become someone who just unironically listens to Eddie Cochran. <laughs> 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 I listen to Eddie Cochran regularly now, um, and that's that's just because Uncle Stevie. So you know, sometimes uh, Uncle Stevie gives you a good recommendation. You can't you can't quit, mm-hmm. and that's me and uh, Eddie Cochran and his big hit. Come on, everybody! <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! Uh, well, that about does it for for all of our segments. Um, just to kind of uh, run through our closing business then, a uh, reminder that we uh, are part of the Range Touch Network. Uh, if you want to know more about what we do here aside from Just King Things, you can check us out on Twitter, at uh, Range Touch. You can also find videos that we do uh, with Let's Plays, um, commentary video games, things like that. Uh, Uh, range touch on youtube and if you want to know uh, if you want to like you know really contribute to to ongoing efforts to uh branch into to new new vistas of uh uh discussion possibility uh we are currently still on the road to our homestuck podcast we have uh refigured that slightly from uh, 1,025 supporters on Patreon to just a, a hard cap of uh, $4,500 per month. When we get there, we will immediately begin work on the Homestuck podcast where Cameron and I will read through all of the classic, extremely weird and complicated webcomic Homestuck. I have read it before, Cameron has not, and, and we will talk through it in much the way that we do here. If you want something that is kind of like this, but extremely more weird and online, that's the thing you, you want to back. And I I think we're we're are we less than a thousand dollars away from that now cameron less than a thousand dollars yeah so less than a thousand dollars if you give us just a, a tiny bit of money right just one dollar uh that'll be uh counted toward that that will help us thank you so much but also if you give us uh, uh five dollars per month you'll get access to the just king things bonus episodes where cameron and i uh in in sort of like a, a parallel to this show watch a movie that is either an adaptation of the book that we have read or, or some you know connection or, or just some other stephen king movie that has no textual basis and we talk about it and we sort of build on the conversation that we had uh here in in this show um but with a more cinema influence like a cinematic outlook uh this month we'll be talking about the 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 film itself Cujo by uh directed by Lewis Teague from I think it's 1983 is that right Mm, sure okay well just a couple years after this (laughs) book uh it's 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 one of those it's a quick turnaround right um and so you'll get to hear uh, all our thoughts about that and not to mention all of the the previous bonus episodes um anything else you want to add to that cameron i don't think so i think that's it okay well uh one thing that i wanted to plug uh is that if you want to hear me talking about movies that are not stephen king you can check out the podcast uh bs with friends that i was a guest on uh earlier this month um it's just it's a film podcast uh with two friends max and z uh and they uh each of them they they watch a movie and they talk about it and the situation is always like someone has seen the movie and someone else hasn't and just sort of talk about it 
Um, I showed up to discuss a movie that I had not seen, which was Danny Boyle's 1994 film uh, Shallow Grave, a kind of weird black comedy thriller from the guy who was going to give us 28 Days Later, uh, Slumdog Millionaire, uh, Sunshine, Yesterday. Uh, if you wanted to see what that guy did at the beginning of his career, train spotting, I guess that's the big one. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. drop by. We have we have lots of interesting thoughts on that. Um, um, give uh, Max and Z a listen. Uh, it's very interesting. You got to sunshine before you got to train spotting. I I think of sunshine a lot because I hate that movie. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it. We're gonna have to. This is a little preview of uh, our wildly differing opinions on the film of Cujo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but be sure to come back next month when we will be diving back into the world of Bachman to discuss. 1982's The Running Man. So we'll be talking about not only that novel, but the bonus episode will be on the Schwarzenegger film. So that's going to be a great double feature for y'all. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, as always, folks, uh, you know, take care of yourselves out there. Um, make sure your, your animals have their shots. Uh, and until we see you again, Cameron, we're going to keep, we're going to keep working away at this. We're going to keep reading the books of Stephen King in publication order. And what is our goal? What is our drive? Well, you know, before I get there, Michael, I, I want to float this to you. Um, what if, you know, much like, um, the end of the price is right. We began to change our outro to always make sure your pets have their shots. <laughs> You know, like we have like a thing that we care about mm -hmm. and it's making sure your pets have their shots. Yeah. We should, you know, I'm just floating it. We're not going to specify the shots, actually. Just some shots. Mm -hmm. Some shots. Um, but that's not really the, the outro. The real outro is, remember, we did it for the world, but also we did it for Steve. <clears throat> you there? You're recording? Okay. Boop, boop, boop. All right. Oh, ready. no. Are you okay? I'm okay. <laughs>